Welcome to Year with Jesus, where we're spending time learning how to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Bill. And I'm Philip. And this week, we are in Mark chapters 12 and 13. So Philip, really, Mark, we were kind of commenting this a little bit earlier, Mark chapters 11 through 13, in a lot of ways, seem to be just one large section where Jesus is talking about the failures of God's people, and and maybe more than anything else, the failures of Jerusalem, the temple, because of God's people. And so in chapter 12, he's really continuing some of the things he's already mentioned in chapter 11, right? Yes. The conversation at the end of chapter 11 had been something that they had brought to him. They want to know, how do you have the authority to do this? But in the way Jesus responds to them, he's able to show that they're not even genuine in their mm-hmm. question, and they don't really have a genuine interest in hearing from him. So as we begin chapter 12, now Jesus is going to be in the driver's seat on this conversation, and he has some really important things to say to them. Yeah, so there's a switch, right? So he says, I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. But then in chapter 12, he begins to tell them some things, and he speaks in a parable. And really, before we even look at the parable, I think it's important that at the end, they know that he's talking about them. We know that they Jesus do. speaks in parables and in other parables, they they don't really understand the point. They leave not understanding. He speaks in a parable, but they get it this time. Definitely. The reference that he uses here at the beginning of chapter 12 is basically quoting or alluding to Isaiah chapter 5, mm-hmm. where God has, again, described the city of Jerusalem as this vineyard. He said, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And then Isaiah says in verse 3, O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So this is more than just a parable. Mm -hmm. This is an indictment against the city using the language of Isaiah. And so they definitely know he is holding them accountable for their rejection. Yeah. And and again, because they they presume to own something that belonged to God. The the vineyard was always God's. He was allowing them to work in it, but they assumed it was his. And maybe... And maybe it's just important for us to just take some time and think about in our own lives for us to remember that the work that we're able to do in the kingdom of God is the kingdom still belongs to God. That God, whether when that's not just for evangelists, if you are a part of God's kingdom, it's God's kingdom and he just allows us to work in it. And we need to make sure that we understand that we're stewards of the grace that he's bestowed upon us. Yes, that we're actually producing the kind of good fruit that he has every right to expect, given all the blessings and all the support that he's given into that vineyard. Yeah. So here we get this idea that he's sending multiple messengers back to the vineyard, not only to give a final account, but really just to give some course corrections. And when I think about what the scripture does for each of us, it is those course corrections, whether we're reading from the Old Testament prophets or we're looking at the New Testament epistles, there should be course corrections being made, but they don't respond that way, do they? And not not at all. And and so whenever the father decides to send his beloved son, his thought is, to your point on the course corrections, they will respect my son. His yeah. thought process isn't, I'm going to send my son to chastise them or to punish them. It's they're going to respect him. They're going to listen to him. And their big idea is, let's kill him. Let's do away with him. And so he says, the owner of the vineyard, what, like, what, what, what would he do? What other option is he going to have? Is he just going to be like, all right, here, sure, take the vineyard? Absolutely not. There's going to there's going to come punishment. 
Yes, he's going to come in, and verse 9 says that he will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So this is, again, speaking about Jeremiah, who says there's this new covenant coming, a new covenant where I'm going to put my law on their hearts. There are going to be others in God's kingdom that will produce its good fruit and will give God the glory. So then he quotes from the Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What's really neat about that psalm, Psalm 118, is that the psalm is actually a a, a psalm of proclamation, a song of joy because of God's restoration, because of God's goodness towards the people. And what Psalm 18, when it gets to this point, what it's really showing us is that the way in which God brings that about is by this rejected stone that the leaders rejected, but everyone else will see that God will build his house upon that rock. Yes, and what a privilege it is to have Christ as our cornerstone, to the stability, the strength, and ultimately the direction that he forms and shapes the rest of this building because he is our cornerstone in our lives. All right, so this is the second time they're embarrassed by Jesus. Definitely. And so they leave. That's their thing. They're just like, we're out of here. But they're not done. What they're going to do, it seems like throughout the rest of chapter 12, is they're going to try to ask him some questions by sending other people. It's like they're kind of sending some lackeys now, you know. You you go ask him. You you get embarrassed by him now. And this is one of my favorites, really, where they send these Pharisees and the Herodians. And this is a very strange mix. Remember, the Herodians would be more in line with the national government. The Pharisees, very, very devout in keeping the law. But they're coming to Jesus with what they think is a masterful trick question. And they want to know if he'll pay taxes. And Jesus says, bring me the denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they have to respond. It's Caesar. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, they are amazed. Yeah. And, but, and, and, and embarrassed in some ways, I'm sure, too. But, but again, all of this is they have no, they don't care about what the answer actually is. And that's part of the problem. You know, they come and we know that you're truthful. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any. Now, that sounds like they're complimenting him. They're actually trying to jab him in some ways. And so he, he gives their answer. And if you were a Jew, you knew that these coins would say the C, whether it's Augustus Caesar's probably whose, whose inscription it would have been at that time. He's, it would have said Augustus Caesar, the son of the gods. You would have known he is not the son of the gods. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. Yeah. It can't be him. And so then he said, you know, there's that whole picture. Well, whose likeness are you made in? Absolutely. From Genesis chapter one, right? This famous idea that we set apart from all other elements in God's universal creation, we are made in his image. And so the responsibility of what we give back to the Lord from our heart, from our soul. It all is building towards where he's going to discuss these greatest commands at the end of chapter 12. Yeah, and even with that inscription thing, it just makes me think it's not it's not in the Gospel of Mark, but in John chapter 8, again, the whole likeness picture— I mean, they should have been made in the likeness of God, but really they're not, they're not reflecting God. They're not even reflecting the Caesars. They're being made with what they're doing, with the way that they're opposing God. They're being made in the likeness of the enemy, of the evil one, and yes, they, they but are. they fail to see that. So then they come with a second question because they still are determined to try to trap Jesus, and they lay out a super complicated hypothetical scenario here, right, about someone who has seven different brothers, and what does the law require for raising up an heir? And Jesus just puts the nail in the coffin in verse 24. Is this not the reason that you're mistaken? Number one, you do not understand the scriptures, number two, or the power of God. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like this is such a strong, strong admonition for us to make sure we never discount the power of God 
and the scriptures that reveal him to us. When we focus our attention and our minds to understand what God has revealed, we should have a greater faith that gets deeper and deeper all the time. And I think that there was a sense of like, they also fail to understand the totality of the scriptures. So they ask a question about the resurrection and really the resurrection, their question is like something from the law. They're thinking about their, the one wife, the, the two become one. And part of his answer is he uses the burning bush you know, to, to give, to answer them. And, and Jesus, part of his point is because you don't understand God, because you don't understand God's power, you also fail to understand how the scriptures are supposed to work in conjunction with one another to help us better understand God. These aren't disconnected books, right? This is all working together to help us better see God and see his plan and see his workings. That's fantastic. And to see that these great heroes of faith had put their trust and their confidence in God. And yet here, this city the city that is going to be destroyed, the leaders of this day are resisting him and are rejecting him. I also love, by the way, that like Jesus isn't trying to give them some new teaching right now. He's using the scriptures that they should have known, the scriptures that they were familiar with to talk to them about the questions that they have. And, and as people, there will be times that people come and they ask questions. Sometimes it's to test, sometimes it's general curiosity. I think it's important to learn from Jesus that whenever you're discussing with people, you should use where they're at. You should use even their knowledge to help them see God's light and God's truth. Okay, so then here comes maybe one of the most famous, the third question. The scribes came, and they were arguing, recognizing he had answered everyone else well. They asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? They get the Old Testament references he's making. So of all of those, Jesus, then, which one is most important? And Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know, they asked for one and he gives a bonus yeah. because Jesus is like that, right? He is wanting to get to our hearts. He's wanting to give us the full picture. And they have the great opportunity here to embrace that but they're still resisting him. And I wonder if part of both of those answers is to help them understand if you love the Lord your God and if you love your neighbor, there is, and, and if you love God and you love your neighbor with the intensity that Jesus is calling us to do here, all the law is going to be contained within it. You're not going to, there's, there's no law that will be found outside of these two great commands that God gives. Yes, and the commandments that we have from the Lord are amplifying and helping us carry out not just a superficial love, mm -hmm. but a genuine heavenly love. And, and it seems like that scribe that comes and asks him these questions, maybe at first he's arguing with him and he hears Jesus answer. And at least he's different from the other guys because he's like, yeah, that that's is, true. that's exactly, he's like, that's exactly what it is. And he's like, God wants the heart more than he does even burn offerings and sacrifice, which it's funny because I think his answer is actually an indictment on the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians, maybe without them even acknowledging it, because he's 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 giving them Micah six here, you know, That's that great. this is what God wants, is, is, is he wants their hearts. And after that, no one wants to say anything. They don't. And so now he's back in the driver's seat again. He's mm -hmm. answered their questions. So he's going to challenge them. He's asked them, how is it that the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus acknowledges that he's fulfilling this scripture. And I love that he's even acknowledging the Holy Spirit was behind the inspiration for David to write this scripture. Yeah. So we don't ever want to discount God's work in inspiring the word in the Old and in the New Testament. And yet they do not 
like the question because they cannot answer him the way he's been so masterfully answering them. And because he's been answering them and then teaching in this way, he can continue his teaching and say things like, beware. These scribes and Pharisees, these guys who want to ask these questions to, to trap people, they love to walk around in long robes. They love the pray. They love the respectful greetings. They love the chief seats. And what they really are, if you look deep down inside, if you look past the masquerade, what they really are are people who devour widows' houses. For appearance sake, they offer up these long prayers. But what they're actually going to receive is a greater condemnation. And so we are all challenged here to examine ourselves, to not fall into that process of becoming hypocritical, of pushing away the teachings of Jesus, but to be sure that we are embracing the commands that he provides that help us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So so I, I love what happens here because he, he gives that teaching talking about devouring widows' houses, and then a widow comes up. That's right. It's almost like right on cue, she comes up, gives these two mites or these two small copper coins that she has. And what, like, what stands out to you about what Jesus says about her contribution in comparison to the other guys? Right. This is actually giving, not just with maybe generosity, but giving with faith. This is giving, relying on God, trusting on God, depending on God for everything that God would provide. Yeah. You think about what it is to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, for her, with all of your literally with all of your resources. That's right. And that is what God, she gave all that she had to live on. And so in chapter 13, they leave the temple and they're, and again, they fail to get it. Because what they have their eyes on, maybe just like they would have had their eyes on the guys coming in with the large sums, what they have their eyes on are the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings. And Jesus says, yeah, these temples, they would have looked magnificent, even by modern standards, to see stone that was cut that beautifully and perfectly, to see the ceremonies that were being taking place in that area. It would have been a tremendous thing to witness. And yet Jesus says in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And so what we really need to appreciate, I know you want to add a comment here, but what we need to appreciate is the focus on the temple first, because the temple is the center of worship. And in the new covenant, Jesus is the center of worship. And so he needs to answer some questions that the apostles have about how things are about to change. Yeah, they're going to be confused. They'll ask, well, what's the sign for when these things are going to be fulfilled? And I I think you see their genuineness in asking, because we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees ask for signs, and he says, you're not getting one. But here, he lets them know. He says, the sign is going to be, there's going to be other people claiming to be like me. And we know in secular history that there were people in the 60s and the 70s around the time of the destruction of, of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, people claiming to be the Christ who misled many people as the temple then ended up being destroyed. And the Romans come and they do exactly what Jesus says is going to happen here. Yes. And it's important to note that Mark is giving us a compacted version of this conversation. You can look for more details in Matthew. You can look for more details in Luke. And really the best way to study these chapters is to look at the harmony of all three of these first century eyewitnesses to these conversations in order to know that Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem and most especially the temple as something that was localized, something that was escapable, something that was coming very soon. And yet woven in here is some concept and some language to be ultimately prepared Mm -hmm. for when Christ comes in his second coming, not with regard to sin, but with regard to judgment. Yeah, and and I think even as he's talking about going back a little bit here about the destruction of the temple, he's just like, it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
and people are going to hate you and people are going to, they're going to imprison you. You're going to be persecuted by people. But I love what he says in verse 13, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And that's just, there's a message. And I love this because even in this dark chapter with all this darkness and all this destruction, there's a message of hope. If you're willing to take the darkness in, in Jesus's name, take the punishment, take the shame, take the scorn. And in all of that, hold on and endure. There's light at the end of all of that. And I think some of our listeners would like to know in verse 24 what the meaning of this word tribulation is. It really carries the idea of like being stretched out. Mm -hmm. We might think about old uh, movies that we've seen where somebody is put on a rack and stretched out. These things were going to stretch them. It was going to stretch their faith. It was going to stretch their perseverance and their endurance. But this cosmic language that God is using to describe a great transformation and a great change is letting them know that things will never be the same. Because in this new covenant with the Lord, where Christ is the center and Christ is the focus, we have a greater hope and a greater reward than even the promised land mm -hmm. that their ancestors had anticipated. Again, I think so much of their ancestors, their, their ancestors also had to live with these false prophets who were also promising things that were just, were not going to come to fruition. You think about so much, the book of Jeremiah, the God is telling Jeremiah, destruction is coming. The false prophets were saying, everything is going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And we just, it, that's so much of what was happening in that day. Even the false Christ that were going to come. Jesus, he says, verses 21 through 23, I'm letting you know these things because false Christ are going to come. False prophets are going to arise. They're going to show signs and wonders to lead people astray. But take heed because I've let you know ahead of time. And I think even today, we have to be careful about that because there are teachers, false teachers that I believe exist promising that everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Nothing bad's ever, ever going to happen. And we have to make sure that we're sticking to what the scriptures say and telling people what the word of God says. That's excellent. That's excellent. So now Mark is going to wrap up these chapters. He's had this big section, right, in pointing out the shortcomings and the failings of his first century audience. And he's asking those that will pay attention to him to stay alert. Verse 33 down to verse 37 is, again, this compacted form of the same, same story that we get back in the book of Matthew. Mm -hmm. But there's a man that's gone on a journey, and he's got responsibilities that he gives to his household. He says in verse 35, so be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. And in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Bill, how can we be alert today as Christians? Yeah, so there's two different things. that Because in verse 23, he'll say, take heed. And then in verse 20, 33 and, and 37, the same message. But like you don't, because you don't know, you have to be ready at all times. You have to be on guard at all times. And I think sometimes for us, it's just the mindfulness of, I don't know when God's going to come back. And so I'm going to live as if it could be right now. That's right. If we're part of this vineyard and he's looking for those grapes, he's looking for that good fruit, that I want to live each day producing that good fruit. I want to live each day just doing things that he would be pleased with, things that he would be proud of, thinking about the stewardship that we have, not just of our finances, but really the stewardship we have over our time mm -hmm. and our life. We, we only have a short amount of time to use our blessings, our relationships, and our talents to God's glory. We want to be busy with that. Amen. And so as we think about really chapters 12 and 13, and maybe even going back to chapter 11, from 11 to 13, this section that Jesus gives, I think one of the things we have to see about Jesus is that Jesus has expectations of his people. 
He has expect he had an expectation of what the temple should have been like, and it wasn't that. He had an expectation of what the fig tree was supposed to be, and it wasn't that. He has expectations of what the people working the vineyard was supposed to be, and they weren't that. And it's all kind of the same thing. But I think today, we are, if we're Christians, we are God's people. We're called by his name, and he has expectations of us. And if we're not fulfilling the expectations that he has, he has every right to cut us off. You know, so I think as we interact with our family, our friends, people in the community, we want to be bringing out whose image we're really in, Mm -hmm. that we're not the image of the Caesar, right? We're not the image of any political leader today. We are setting forth the image of Jesus Christ. And as we can help people see our Lord and his priorities through our choices, then we're more fulfilling those expectations. And then just for us personally— You know, we have to make sure, like we've already mentioned, that we are taking heed because our Lord, the King, he's going to come back. He's going to want, you know, and we have to make sure, and I love the way you phrased it earlier with the vineyard and using that imagery, that we are bearing the fruit that he's expecting of us. And, you know, it might be tempting to say, wow, he's coming. He's going to check. I better be ready and start bearing that fruit out of fear. But what has Jesus told us in chapter 12? The greatest commandment, again, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The sacrifices that Christ has made, the miracles that he's performed, the way he's loved us fills us with love in these responsibilities Mm -hmm. and love in carrying out these expectations, not just dread. We can look forward to Christ's ultimate return when we'd be welcomed into the family as adopted sons and daughters. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening to A Year with Jesus. This week was Mark chapters 12 and 13. Next week, we will be in Mark chapter 14. If you want more information on our podcast or on the reading plan, you can go to embryhills.com slash podcast.